So we are jumping into a new series today, and this new series is all about experiences. In fact, we're calling it seven experiences because if you look at the life of Christ, Jesus actually outlined seven, I would say, commands, but we're going to talk about them in terms of experiences. That Jesus outlined that there's things that we as Christian persons, followers of Jesus, we have to reconcile in our life. We have to come to a place where we say, okay, God, if I'm going to follow you, then these are going to be markers in my life that I'm a Christian. These are going to be markers in my life that I'm a Christ follower. Jesus outlined them specifically. We'll get into every single one of them over the next five weeks. But today we're going to talk about a very particular idea, the idea of change. Now, your Bible uses a different word for change, and we'll use them interchangeably here in just a moment, but your Bible uses the word repent, and sometimes that's a big word. Sometimes that's a hard word to swallow. I don't want to repent. I never do anything wrong. Hallelujah. A very famous businessman was once asked about his relationship with God, and he said, I love the Bible. I love God, but I've never really felt a need to repent, and I thought, you don't know Jesus. If you've never felt a need to repent, you don't know Jesus. You don't know the God of the Bible. It's just a coffee table book for you. The fact is, we have this definitive idea of the grace of God. Most of us, maybe we, we've, we've started to study out the, the term grace as it's pictured many times in Scripture. And if you look at it in its original Greek format, you, you see this idea that it's God's unmerited favor. That's a good theological definition. That doesn't help us in practical, everyday language. In fact, I would say that the definition, a better working definition of the idea of grace is God's ability to change. Unmerited favor, God's ability to change. That you didn't work up the ability in your own strength, but that God gives you supernaturally, endows you with the potential, with the ability to change. I love talking about the idea of change. In fact, if you've been around this church for any length of time at all, you know I love change. I will change stuff just to do it. And I know it irritates some of you. It's okay. Some of you might remember that we started this facility, in this facility here, the stage was over there. We had a whole different arrangement. We were looking that way towards whatever street that is, Brady Street. And it wasn't a few months later I said, you know what, I don't like this, let's change it. Turned the whole thing around. That meant moving speakers, rerouting sound, pulling wires, changing the stage. And some of you came in from one Sunday to the next, and it was just a totally different setup. I love change. I love the idea of change. I'll change things just to do it, just because it's fun. Some of us hate change. Some of us hate the idea of change. You start talking about change, there's something in you that says, nope, not for me, not doing that. I don't want anything a part. I don't want to be anything a part of that. Change is difficult when it's our stuff. Change is very difficult when it gets personal. Change is very difficult when someone from the outside tells you you have something inwardly that you need to change. They look at you, your boss says you have habits around the work environment, you need to change them, especially if you want to keep your job. Your spouse may come to you and say you need to change some things especially if we're going to have a good working relationship in our home. Your kids grow up and they start to mimic and model the parents and all of a sudden you recognize there's something I need to change because that child's a brat and it's obvious where it comes from. There are things in life that force us to change and many times they're very hard things to look at. 
the closest thing in most believers' lives that they ever really understand as victory is the idea of tenacity. Most believers don't really live in victory. They live in tenacity. They're, they're struggling. They're working. They're fighting for something. They're fighting for a level of change. I would say this, that most of you are here today because you anticipate change. Most of us come to church from week to week because we anticipate some level of change. We want to walk out the door and have life be a little different than when we walked in. We believe that if life changes a bit, if the picture or the scope of our future changes a bit, then life will be good. We're hoping that Jesus is that good-natured God that we've read about. That when we come to the cross, that there's actually a power resonant in the cross to change something about our life. Many times we don't want to focus that it's inward, we want to focus that it's external. Or at the very least, if I have to change, maybe I just have to change behavior. Maybe the pastor will tell me the wrong and the right thing to do, and then I know that I'll go to heaven. We anticipate things like the pastor saying, don't watch any of them satanic rated R movies, bless God. Don't you listen to that rap music, you'll go straight to hell, hallelujah. We get in our mind this idea that Behavioral change is what Jesus is after. Nowhere in Scripture do we see the idea that repentance and behavioral change are synonymous. We'll get there in just a moment. But nowhere in Scripture do we see the behavioral change and simply changing or, or, or repentance are the same thing. Now, tenacity is good. Tenacity is not victory. Tenacity is good, but tenacity is not change. Tenacity is something I think many of us need to motivate ourselves from day to day, but it doesn't really bring about honest results until something inward changes. One of my favorite quotes about change from, comes from Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole, and it's a word salad that sometimes doesn't make sense on the surface, but if you look at it closely, it makes a whole lot of sense. Change isn't change until it's change. I love that statement. Change isn't change until it's changed. We could turn it around and use the word repentance for a biblical context that repentance isn't repentance until it's repentance. Dang it, pastor, you're supposed to be happy in the morning. What's wrong with you? I don't want to repent. Change and repentance are all part of the same family. But promises to change are not change. Reading books on change is not change. Listening to sermons on change is not change. Planning to change is not change. Words are not evidence of change. Only change is evidence of change. And I'm not talking about the thing in your pocket and going jang-a-lang-a-lang. I'm talking about change. Actually doing something that brings about a substantive change in your life. I had a pastor who I was working with one time and we were walking through some issues in my life. He saw some things in me that needed to change, that I needed to repent of. And I thought, this guy is crazy, but all right, I'll go with him on the journey. We talked at length about different issues in my life, and he said, listen, someday you're going to know you're on the right track when you meet someone who have, you haven't seen in a very long time, who knew you in your past, and they're going to look at you and say something different about you. I can't put my finger on it. There's something different about you. Something has changed. And for many of us, that's the goal in life, that we run into a peer we run into a friend. We run into a distant relationship. 
And when we get in conversation and we become connected in community, that eventually they recognize something about us is fundamentally changed and we can honestly whisper the answer is Jesus. We can honestly say that I'm not the person I used to be. I'm not the person you remember because Jesus. You know, we don't have to slam a Bible on top of a table to prove that we've changed. We don't have to pray long-winded prayers to prove that we've changed. You don't have to even visit a church to prove you've changed. I'm a pastor. I'm all for church attendance. The change is a motivator. Repentance is a motivator that comes from within that says there's something in my life that could be better, and I want to find out how far Jesus will take me on this journey. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 14 and verse 15. Now, through this sermon series, we're going to hit a lot of high points, and it's going to feel a lot like introductory sermons over the next five weeks. You're going to feel like I didn't get deep enough. That's okay. That's what the small groups are for this fall. Every one of these seven experiences over seven weeks, and the small groups will last a little longer than seven weeks, but over the seven weeks, we will touch on in a deeper manner every single one of these experiences so that when we walk away over this small group year and calendar that you have invested in, you have time invested in understanding what Jesus is actually teaching us, what it means to be a Christian. So John chapter 15, or chapter 14 and verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, simple verse, you'll keep my commandments. It's hard to mess that one up. It's hard to translate that any differently. Guess what it says in the Greek? Every single one of the Greek words, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There's no trick Bible. Mine says the same thing yours says. It's written in red. Jesus is about us conforming to the will of God. That forces us to change. That forces us to come headlong with the idea that I have to repent and change of where I was. And we'll deal with the idea of repentance in a moment. In fact, I hope that we come to Jesus with the idea that something will change. If you're sick, I hope that you have enough faith in the person of Christ, even if it's at its very basis level of faith, that you come to Jesus anticipating wholeness and health. I hope that if you come to Christ and you are depressed, that you come to him with hope that he can lift the burden of depression. I hope that if you come in the door and you are absolutely flat on your nose broke, that you know that God can raise you even out of the most disruptive financial deficits that the world's ever seen. I hope we have enough faith in God that we believe our situation can change. Otherwise, what are you doing here? What are you here for? Just for the music? Just for the speaking? I hope you love Lori and I. We think we're awesome. I hope you think we're awesome. But that's not enough reason to come to church every week. You have to come with an anticipation. And in fact, we'll get here in just a moment. It's part of Jesus's mantra. It's part of his expectation that we would change. So Mark chapter 1 and verse 15 is going to be the the pinnacle for what we're going to talk about today. Again, Jesus' words, if you love me, you'll follow my commandments. If you love me, you'll do what I've asked. If you're my disciples, if you want to really follow me, if you're passionate about this walk in Christ, you'll do what I ask. Mark's first direct quote of Jesus is an announcement that the kingdom of God has arrived. But the kingdom of God, what the world has been searching and waiting for, what the Jews had been hoping for, it came in this package of the person of Jesus. He is that total embodiment of the kingdom. He is Messiah. 
But as Messiah, he has two ways in which the kingdom is realized in our lives. Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Change and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. What you've been looking for, what you're hoping for, what you're believing for, the good change that can come into your life, your future direction, taking a different path and being one fully in step with the person of God. That can happen. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the kingdom of God realized here and now. But it starts with a change. It starts with the concept of repentance. See, the Jews had a very inaccurate idea of what was going to happen when their Messiah came. They were hoping and praying, and Jesus first delivered this news of his coming kingdom that it would be here, and now he first delivered it to Jewish men and women. Because they were anticipating, they were hoping, they were believing for that moment their Messiah would come, yet they had an idea of what he would do and what he would be, and what Jesus did was totally turn that idea upside down on itself. They believed that the Messiah would lead them into, at first, political independence. That they would walk away from the broken political system that they were under. The rule, the heavy hand that they were under in the Roman Empire. Jesus didn't overthrow a Roman government. They thought that they would live in civil peace. Jesus promised peace. Peace that passes understanding. He's even characterized as the Prince of Peace. They knew the motivating factor of the Messiah would be one who brings peace, yet... There was much unrest even after Jesus. In fact, Christians met their death in torturous environments after Christ, yet he was called the Prince of Peace. He was to usher in peace. And thirdly, they were hoping for personal prosperity, that God would finally raise their socioeconomic status, and some of them lost everything in following Christ. So was there hope for Messiah a lie? Was Jesus just a facade of what could have been? Was there hoped for Messiah something that never really materialized? No, it's an understanding that the kingdom comes, but the kingdom comes by way of repentance and belief. These things were wrong to hope for. In fact, if we live our life fully in Christ, there is political independence that comes. I am not bound to any political system as a Christian. I vote one way, but I'm not bound to it. And if that political system doesn't hold to my values or to my beliefs as a Christian, I can just as easily walk away and find a political structure that does. Not without cause and not without hardship, but I can walk away because I'm not bound to a political system. So there is a set of political independence. Civil peace, I know that I can be at peace with myself with myself and God first, that when Jesus comes and the idea of repentance happens or change happens, that I don't have to worry and wonder about the external fights that might happen between family, between friends, between this group or that group. I don't have to worry about the social and civil unrest that happens around me. I know Jesus is the peacemaker. And if I live in Christ, there is an attitude and actions of peace that ultimately flow from me. It doesn't mean I don't have a backbone. It simply means that he can calm and weather even the most harshest of storms and ideology disagreements. And the third thing there is I know that personally I can be prosperous when Jesus comes into my life, not because I won't have struggle, not because this life isn't real, but because I live in an economic system that he set up a way in which we can beat the system. 
and I, and I can't, I don't have time to get into it, but this all happens because the kingdom of God is now exposed in full force in our life, but it starts with this idea of repentance. Metanoia is the idea of, or the Greek word for repentance. There's a strict definition, is to change one's mind or and or purpose. This word for repentance or change is used 34 times in the New Testament. Must be important if it's used 34 times in the Greek New Testament. It's a high level in which this word has been used. That we would come as believers and the marker of the kingdom would be first and foremost in us. That we need to change our mind and our purpose on how this thing works. We think we have an idea of how religion works. Come, pay your tithe, worship. Eventually, God will do something good for you. He's like a magical fairy with pixie dust. and He'll sprinkle some good here and he'll sprinkle some good there. And hopefully in areas of your life where things are just beaten up, where life is difficult and hard and you struggle, that hopefully that pixie dust will get mixed in in the struggle of your life and poof, the magic will happen. When we don't understand, that's not at all what he came to do. Jesus came to change our mind and our purpose. Our mind is generally singular as human persons. We have an idea, a want that is ours. We think we understand and know the best outcome. Sometimes it's not God's outcome. Sometimes it's not God's intention at all. God blew our minds when he said we were living in Pittsburgh, a city with three professional sports teams, as you've heard me say. When God called us to move to a city with zero, I thought the devil is a liar. I don't want to move there. I don't want to move back home. I've been gone for a good number of years, Jesus. I don't want to move back to the Midwest. But God knew better. God had a plan and a purpose. I had to change my mind. I had to repent of the idea I had to repent and move my purpose. My stated purpose was to help grow, to help energize, to help strategize with the church we were in. I was doing everything in my stated purpose. I was mentally focused and sharp to help that church grow and exceed all limitations. And God said, change your mind. It's no longer in Pittsburgh. It's in the Quad Cities. It's a repentance that happens, that we learn that the, the vision, the purpose of God, when we are in him, he will guide us, he will direct us, he will move us, and sometimes it's shocking in how we have to repent. Jesus uses the word repent, and it's echoing the man who came before him, his cousin, his forerunner in the faith. John is classified, John the Baptist is classified as the one, the wild man in the wilderness who preaches a message of repentance and be baptized. He was the forerunner and Jesus' message on repentance mimics that of his cousin, mimics that of John the Baptist, that he would also bring this message, change your mind, change your purpose, change your mind and your focus. I think many of us have a hard time understanding what this means because we're looking for externals on how to change little things in our life to prove to God, look, I've done the right thing. I give, I tithe, I pray, I worship. I put my hands up like a crazy person in worship when the music's going on. Jesus, I do it all. I wave them sometimes. God, I'm doing it. I, I'm doing everything I know to do. And he's saying, no, no, it has to change here first. Change comes inward always first every time. This is one of the hardest things when we talk about repentance in the, concept, in the context of Christianity because we have to repent daily of all kinds of things. When we are sick in our bodies 
and we're not applying or appropriating the promises of Scripture that you can be healed, one of the problems is our mind tells us we're sick. And so because our mind and our body tells us we're sick, we hold on to the idea that I am sick. We identify and own our sickness. Rather than saying, I don't care what this body does, this is temporal. I don't care what the feelings are, they are temporal. I know that in Christ, I am healed. You then change your mind and your purpose. Because when you identify with sickness, your purpose is to remain sick or own it. When you identify as healed and whole in Christ, your purpose then changes, and it is the attitude of repentance. Listen, you can pray till you're blue in the face that you want healing, but until you change, repent, the kingdom of God is not actualized or realized, therefore healing doesn't happen. That's not every case, that's most cases. There's some other things we can talk about with healing. The same thing is true for every promise that God lines out in Scripture. That the moment we anticipate that we accept it and that it's appropriated to our life because we've changed our mind and our purpose, then the kingdom of God is unlocked. Some of you might be givers. You might have given for many, many years to a church and not seen any financial increase. And you think, well, that pastor is a liar. Jesus never gave back anything into my life. In fact, it's been harder since we've been giving. Have you changed your purpose? Have you changed your mental, your, your mental capacity to see what the finances laid at the cross do when they are seed unto the gospel? Have you changed the perspective in how you look at giving? Because if you look at it as just money leaving your hand, like poof, going off into the air and hoping that God turns into a genie in a bottle and blesses you here and there and sprinkles his pixie dust. That's not how it works. There are principled ways in which we give, and that when God we give, God is bound to his word to increase our life in certain areas. He's bound and determined to do it. He can't break the word. He can't break the law that he's already set. But we have to change our mind for the kingdom of God to be recognized in our life. The idea of repentance is all about change. What are we changing? And I love, I love this, this next part. He says, all right, Jesus' words. The time has come. It's the fullness of time. The Messiah is standing in front of them. He says, the kingdom of God is right here, right now. It's at hand. It's right in front of you. The first thing he says is, repent, change. Change your mind, change your focus, change your purpose. And then he turns around and says, believe. I love this word, believe. I love this word believe because it's a new word. Jesus introduces a new word in the vernacular of the believer, in the vernacular of church. He uses a new word that's mostly used in mystical accounts uh, that are read in, in, around the Roman culture. He uses a new word that he interjects into this language of Christianity and this new church that's forming, that will form in the first century. He uses this new word that is a watchdog for the ministry for this new ministry, for Jesus coming about. A new word that he will repeat over and over and over. Believe, believe. If you only believe, believe. It's one thing to change our mind because life pulls us in a different perspective or because situations and circumstances pull us off of course or because we're faced with a different set of facts and knowledge. It's another thing to believe to, to, to believe because we have settled in our heart that something we can't see, that we can't feel, something that we may not be experiencing in the moment is reality. Jesus came. 
They were anticipating something different in his coming, that he would be like a conquering king, that he would wage war, that he would amass around him many, many soldiers, and they would overtake and overthrow a government by the mighty hand of God. They had seen God do it again and again in the history of Israel, yet Jesus comes as Messiah. He doesn't fulfill any of those promises the way they anticipated. They had to, at some point, change their focus change their mind, change their purpose, and believe. The belief part about the change is difficult. Believing that what you're confessing, believing that what you're saying, believing that what you're reading is real and true and honest and rings true in your life, it's the hardest thing when it comes to a life of faith. Because your body, your mind, your will, your emotions will want to tell you something totally contrary to the Word of God. Do you have kids in your life right now that you're fighting with, that you're at odds with? It is incredibly difficult to hold to the statement that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It is hard when those little brats are running all crazy all over the, all over the countryside. It is hard when they're not disciplined in their life to follow the word of God, the promise of God for themselves. It gets difficult to believe that. It gets difficult to believe something contrary to what you're experiencing. Yet this faith life, the idea of the kingdom coming here and now, is all about a belief system that we hold that sometimes we don't feel in the present here and now. I'll give you an example in my own life and something that we talked about over the last couple weeks because this building is a big move for us. A couple years ago, we moved into this facility anticipating that this would be a place where we would grow roots and we would obviously, we wanted to buy this, this property, help to decorate this property and help to uh, mature this property so it looks like the rest of Brady Street. And it's, it's new and, and there's all kinds of energy behind it. We, 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 really, we really wanted that. We really believed in that. Some of you know it didn't work out the way we wanted to. Obviously it didn't. We're moving in a couple weeks. Now, when we came into this building... Someone in our, in our congregation came to me and said, Pastor Nathan, I really believe the building we're going to ultimately move into is a building with a big white steeple on it. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I hate steeples. Nope. <laughs> I'll cross that one off. Check mark. You're wrong. You didn't hear from Jesus. I'm the pastor. <laughs> I was so wrong. I was so, I was told, and if you didn't notice, the picture of that new building has a big old white steeple on the front. God was speaking loudly strongly. Not that this wasn't a place for us to make a pit stop on our journey, but God was speaking loudly. I have provision for you. It's out in front of you. You don't see it. I'm going to speak to this person. And when you see that vision come to pass, you're going to know that's where I've called you. Even with this building, as we were touring the facility, the elders and, and myself, we walked around the facility and really questioned ourselves, is this the right place? All of the other doors that we were looking at another facility slammed in our face. We had a facility that we had in mind that the deal was moving quickly on. It looked like they were ready to go. And at the last minute, they pulled the deal from us and said, no, we're not going to go through with it. They're decided to do something totally different in that building now. And I couldn't for the life of me figure out what was going on. And the facility that we're moving into on West River Drive opened up, the potential opened up, and it became an opportunity for us to trust God, even though we weren't sure, and even though the footing seemed a little rocky, even though it looked like we're stepping out under the unknown, God showed up. And the moment we announced we had a financial need, that financial need was met within two weeks. 
Listen, God speaks loudly when you change your perspective. God speaks loudly when you repent, and I had to repent. I had to go to this woman in our church and say, listen, God spoke to you two years ago, and I wasn't listening. Even as a pastor, I wasn't listening. I'm sorry, I should have listened. And she, you know, she's gracious. She said, thank you. Thank you, I get it. Thank you, I get it. It's not necessarily the style that you were looking for. But I had to do the right thing in repent, change my mind, change my purpose, change my focus, and then believe that white steeple she saw in that dream is proof positive we're into the right building. Amen? Lasting change, if we really understand the concept of lasting change, lasting change is effortless. Lasting change is not about you working up the effort to make it happen. Lasting, committed change is not about you doing all of these things behaviorally to finally fit the mold and hope that you can keep it up. How many of you have ever been on a diet? Yeah? How many of you are on a diet now? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> I am. Weight Watchers. I hate that app. I hate counting my food anymore. It's ridiculous. I only have so many points in a day. I don't know why they don't give you like 5,000 points, but whatever. I hate eating chicken. I've eaten, I've eaten so much chicken in the last four weeks. Anyway, whatever. Let me get off my soapbox. I just don't want, to, I don't want to do it anymore. I want to eat a cupcake. That's all. I just want to eat like five of them or 10. Lasting change is effortless. When I was in high school, I was on a diet because I needed to lose some weight as I graduated. I graduated high school, I was... 275 pounds, so the same size I'm now, 275, but it was all belly. It was gut. And I'm tucking my shirt in around this roly-poly belly as I'm getting ready for graduation, looking in the mirror. I'm like, I need to change that. And some of you know my habits before school. Do not bring me Little Debbie snacks after this sermon. But my habit before school was to eat an entire box of Little Debbie snacks, the little brownies with the nuts on top, and have a gallon of milk. I did it every single day. No wonder I was overweight. And it was good. I loved it. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was great. I wish I could still do that, but I look at one, I gained 20 pounds. And I ate this food every single day. And my first, my first goal was this effortless goal I put in front of me, which was so hard at first, but became very effortless. Don't eat every Little Debbie snack in the box. Leave one. Leave one. First day of school that I put that goal in front of myself, I, I left one in the box. And I was jonesing all school day for that stinking little Debbie snack. I knew that when I went back to my car, it was going to be there all warm and nice, baked in the sun. My car was going to smell like that little brownie. Hallelujah. And I couldn't wait to tear open the package and shove that thing in my face. I don't even know if I tasted it, but I know I swallowed it. It was wonderful but I left that one snack in the box all day. I didn't eat it all in the morning. And then the next week it was leave two Little Debbie snacks in the box and try not to eat them at the end of the day. And by the end of a couple of weeks, it was don't drive to that gas station anymore. Just drive past, wave. Like an ex-girlfriend, just bye, Felicia. You know, just go where God's moving you. And after a while, this became an effortless pattern to the point where I don't even really like those snacks anymore. I know some of you bought me a bunch of them last time I gave this analogy, but I don't really like them anymore. They're not something I crave. It's changed. My taste, my taste have refined as an adult. Now I like double stuffed Oreos. So <laughs> just so you're aware, it just refined. I like that more pure chocolate taste. Anyway, 
We all have an opportunity in life to create environments of change. They start out by little steps, but the steps are not there to force our hand. The steps are there for us to live out what God is doing on the inside of us. God put in me a motivation to lose weight. He said, here's a simple way to do it. Stop eating like a pig, like you're eating. Start with this one little Debbie snack, and it's going to become effortless. In time, and as I've said, this is not a struggle for me anymore. So many people struggle, not the weight thing, the little Debbie thing. So many people struggle with issues in life that they don't need to struggle through. Why? Because you're putting so much focus on accomplishing a step. You're putting so much energy and focus on accomplishing the next goal rather than living in the change that God brought you to. As I started out this sermon, I said this idea that grace is God's ability to change. God will give you a supernatural ability to change the issues in your life, to repent. He will give you a supernatural ability to look at something in your life that needs correction and correct it. God never brings you to a place where he expects correction and then doesn't empower you to do it. That'd be just mean and vengeful. All lasting change is effortless. Change that comes by our own efforts, then that change will only last as long as the effort that we put forth. The moment you stop putting forth the effort, the change that you've made will stop. Going back to diets, we all understand this. We get pumped. We get going. We're going to do keto. We shop keto for like 10 months. Man, we're doing keto, keto, keto. No carbs at all. Nothing but bratwurst and cheese. We're on it. And then the next thing you find out is you have one breadstick at Olive Garden because you backslide for one day and you gain back every single pound plus 14 others. Most of us understand how this works, that unless God is empowering you, the change you're expecting to see will fail the moment the drive in you, the moment the tenacity slips away. What does Jesus say and how we recognize and enter into the kingdom? We change, we repent, and we believe the belief happens not because we see the outcome in front of us changing every single time we take the smallest step, but because we believe in the promises of God that he's put before us. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is not a scripture on giving your best effort and hoping that Jesus will somehow sprinkle his fairy dust on it and you'll get through it. Understanding that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you is understanding that in Christ there is unlimited power and that you are tapping into that when you attempt to change something of significance in your life. You're not doing it on your own part. We need to come to a place in Christianity and in this church where we stop expecting people to work out the change in their life and their own effort, but they learn to refocus, to reposition, to find a new purpose in life, and then believe the purpose, the plan of where God's taking them. That's real change. You know how different it is to talk about yourself when you've seen God's plan for your life start to unfold, when you've seen the purpose of God in your life start to unfold and you believe it? You don't talk the way you used to talk. You used to say maybe you were a dirty old sinner saved by grace, but when you see God's purpose un un unfolding in your life, you say things now like I used to be a sinner. 
I have been saved by grace, but I am now a new creation in Christ Jesus. All the old things have passed away, and I am new in Him. Your newness in Christ doesn't, become, doesn't come because you're good enough or because you tried hard enough or because you happen to jump over all the spiritual hurdles. This is the problem with most churches. They have a spiritual pegboard that you're trying to climb up, and every time you think you've reached the pinnacle, they add another layer to the pegboard. That's changing your own effort. Jesus says, rest in me. My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. So whatever in your life you need to repent from, don't expect that when you repent of God, that he's anticipating that you in your own effort fix your woes. He's hoping that you'll give yourself over to him and allow his power to work in you so that change actually happens.